0: This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the roaring 20s. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now, she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on Chapter 6, and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I got swapped. You got swabbed? Yeah, to make sure we didn't have the vids before my mom came. Oh, good deal. I told Russell, I was like, well, if it comes back positive, you know, I have to tell my mom that, you know, she can't come. That she can't come. And then I thought more about it, and I was like, and if it comes back negative, I do know how to edit a PDF, just in case. (laughs) Sorry, Ma. Linda from LaPorte, going to be Louise in Louisville for one week and one week only. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I have to tell you a story. Ooh, what? This is so funny. I had a dream last night. As you know, I read the Harry Potter. Well, I'm reading the Harry Potter books right now for the first, this is my first reread ever. Uh huh. It's very good right now. I'm on Uh the sixth one. But we watched the movies in the fall. So we kind of like have this Harry Potter phase. And Russell's niece, Charlotte, is like five. Maybe she just turned five. (laughs) So I had this dream. We were talking about Harry Potter because I said, kids now, like, they're going to experience it. Like, I'm jealous of people that get to experience it for the first time. It's so great. So I went to bed after we watched this movie and we woke up. I had this dream that Russell, like, said to me, he's like, hey, listen, I know this is going to be really difficult, but I'm going to have to move back to New Jersey because Charlotte is old enough now to read Harry Potter and I need to guide her through this and, like... (laughs) I need to, like, right. be there. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, so I'm really sorry, but this may take a while. <laughs> if we need to, like, split up. And I was like, no, I guess I'll just wait. And I was like, well, you won't be gone long. And he's like, there's seven books. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess I understand. And I woke up and I was like, I would definitely not understand <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, man. I was I just like... Say- oh wait this was a dream yes (laughs) okay yes i thought it was just him joking around like uh deer park boosters (laughs) (gasps) he literally our relationship is him trolling me like 24 7 (laughs) just tonight i was like when's the last time you said something nice to me (laughs) i don't know i've read your twitter feed i think it goes both ways there (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is true (laughs) <laughs> he has no social media on his phone now, though, so it's, like, less fun for me. What? No social media on your on his phone? Yeah. Uh, Talk about a crusty old white guy, am I right? <laughs> what did you first call him? You called him, like, a financial bro? <laughs> <laughs> Finance golf bro, yeah. Finance That's golf crazy. bro. <laughs> this is how I knew that I had, like, really – he was leaving the house one day, and he, you know, like, to leave – like sound on for the dog and he uh-huh. turned on golf channel and he was like he looked over at me and I was like did you just turn on the golf channel for your golden retriever and he was like yeah he likes the bird sounds <laughs> <laughs> all right he likes the bird doesn't sound. get much wider than this I love that you're calling him a golden retriever when we both know the DNA came back <laughs> <laughs> what do you call him though you know? a chow mix 100 perfect in every way All right. Are you ready, Mogab? As I bring the mic closer. (laughs) You know what I'm ready for? What? I was going to wait to say it, but I can't wait till the end. I'm ready to hear that jingle. Oh my God. I know. Y'all. I know. (sighs) Y'all. I almost forgot about it. Okay. We need to do a little (sighs) preview at the beginning because it's just too good. The jingle. Okay. Let me. I can't so, tell if we should be flattered or upset that they were so fed up with our own jingling <laughs> that they had to put a stop to it. We have been working on our jingle for our shout out. You know, we've been talking about how we we're going to make a jingle eventually. We had our great- Working on it? You mean winging it? We've been yes, winging it. To- completely winging it. So anyways, we had a listener, Berlina, at Berlina Star on all the social medias, who came through in a big way and made us this jingle. Shout out oh my god. It's oh Kristen my god. I'm auto tuned. I'm basically in a rap <laughs> video. I'm like, Mogab, it's a bop. <laughs> it's a bop. Like, I just want to like dance, you know? So, anyways, you'll hear that again at the end when we do our <laughs> shout outs. For You'll our be Patreon. That for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's our Patreon, Mogab? I don't really know. I'm just kidding. I do. I do know. She's studying is... the facts now. She knows. Yeah. <laughs> Listen. I could I could do a PowerPoint presentation. It's where you can get more creepers content. Mini creeps, which are like little episodes about all kinds of things, bonus episode full-length bonus episode case that you can only hear on the Patreon. And you get a card, a decal, a shout out. I mean, it just keeps giving. we just dropped our latest mini creep that was a special video edition. So if you just want to see our faces talking (laughs) unedited, (laughs) then check it out. We also have three bonus episodes available for everybody from the $5 level up. Uh, The link is in our show notes. The link is in our Instagram bio. It's patreon.com slash true crime creepers. You won't miss it. Okay. You can find it. And also, thank you, everybody, for having patience and letting us take last week off. It was really much needed. Oh, girl, you just don't even know. I also want to say that we are also going to be taking off a couple of weeks over the Christmas holidays. So. (gasps) PTO? (laughs) No. Oh. I guess. Just T.O. Yeah, I guess it is PTO because you're going to get paid the same no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So we're not going to have episodes for those weeks over Christmas and New Year's in December. So. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with EarnIn. EarnIn is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the EarnIn app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it, instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download EarnIn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers Under Podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers Under Podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com/tos for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. All yeah. right, MoGam. Today, I am telling you about the murders of Vicki Durian and Nancy Santamaro. And they are often referred to as the Rainbow Murders. Oh, well, that sounded happy and sad all at the same time. I know, rainbows are happy, but murder is sad. I was hoping that we weren't doing a murder. I don't know what I was hoping for since this is a true crime podcast, but... (laughs) It's a murder. Sorry about it. But big thanks to Emma Copley-Eisenberg for her book, The Third Rainbow Girl, The Long Life of a Double Murder in Appalachia. And also a big, big, big thanks to Sabrina Eads for reading that book for me and doing pretty much all of the research for this case. Rena, what's she been <laughs> up to? Reading Look, all your she books? She's back and better than ever. And she also brought this case to my attention because I got to tell you, I've like looked for it like on podcasts and stuff. There's not a lot... Uh, of podcasts that I could find that have covered this case, which is really exciting because, as much as I want to say the cases I choose are not that well known, it's just because you don't know them that <laughs> makes me feel that way. <laughs> I was just about to say I've never heard of this. If that means anything, oh, uh, wouldn't it be ironic if this was like the one case you're like, oh yeah, I know about this case. <laughs> <laughs> I know everything. I know everything. I'll tell the story. I'll t- I'll take it from here. <laughs> That'll never happen. <laughs> All right. It was June 25th, 1980. So we're back. Oh. Back in the 80s. I was about to say it was 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, do do well, we know it's not. 40. All right. Oh. A man. <laughs> I'm never going to be over that. That's going to get me every time. I know. A man named Tim was driving home on a two-lane highway in West Virginia that wove through Pocahontas County in the Appalachian mountain range. Have you ever driven through West Virginia before? No, I have not. Okay. Well, my experience that I just would like to put out there for the people, a little PSA. If you're driving through West Virginia, go to the restroom before you hit West Virginia. (laughs) Because literally, there is not one that you will find (laughs) to stop at. Oh, wow. And your girl does not fare well on road trips. And I've had to make some poor choices. On the side of the road in West Virginia, because there is no options. So oh my God. Everyone, just know that. Well, hey, now, you know, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. World. There you go. He started to make the turn toward his cabin up on Droop Mountain that it was famous for like a Civil War battle that had been fought there. When he saw two people lying in this cleared patch. At first, he thought they were like hooking up, so he drove past them, but something <laughs> didn't seem right about it. So he parked his car and he walked back, and that's when he realized the two people that he'd seen were not alive. Oh no. It was the bodies of two women, their eyes were still <gasps> open, and he could see that they'd been shot. Oh my God. Wait, where was this like not on the road, but like he's driving down a road and he was driving down a road and he was turning toward his cabin and it was up on Droop Mm -hmm. Mountain in the Appalachian Mountain Range in West Virginia. One of the women was wearing a red University of Iowa sweatshirt and she was missing a shoe. The other woman was lying on her side and in her hand was a flyer for something called the Rainbow Gathering, which was a festival going on nearby. And it had a hand drawn map suggesting the route to take to get there. Tim, the man that found the women, he called the police, who in this area were not used to getting reports of bodies being found. And soon Gary Hot, a trooper – that's hot with two T's. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, I like that. <laughs> a trooper with Pocahontas County, he arrived and he started photographing the bodies. Due to the positioning of the woman on her side, he decided that it was very necessary to move the body and put her on her back. But don't worry. What? What? Don't worry. He took plenty of photos before he moved the body. Uh. And by that, I mean he took eight photos. No other photos. Which also, like, doesn't matter. Yeah. No other photos of the victims were taken. By the time the ambulance arrived, the bodies were still warm and rigor mortis had not set in, meaning that they were killed recently. Both women had been shot. One was shot twice in the chest and the other shot in the head, neck, and chest. The West Virginia State Police arranged for them to be airlifted to Charleston for an autopsy. It's Charleston, West Virginia, everybody. Is it? It's not Charleston, South Carolina? Yes. There is a Charleston, West Virginia. I was wondering about that. It's the capital. And I re- I'm I sorry. The capital of West Virginia is Charleston. Hey, Google, what's the capital of West Virginia? Charleston. Oh. Huh. All right. So that makes a lot more sense. I was just like <laughs> – I need to look up a map, but is West Virginia and South Carolina like? Are they just really close? And that was the closest like big city. I hadn't gone that far. No, that's like clarify. That's like ten hours away. <laughs> I'm glad you live in Kentucky and know this area of the country. <laughs> uh-huh. I learned that. Um, you know, trial, trial and error. We won't go there. But <laughs> did you end up in the wrong Charleston one day? <laughs> it's fine. All right. The autopsy showed no evidence of sexual assault on either woman. Blood alcohol tests showed very small amounts of alcohol in their system. And the medical examiner placed the time of death at about six or seven in the evening. So that was within about three hours of them being discovered. Do we know where Tim was headed? He was going home. His cabin was like right by where the women oh, were Oh, that's found. like his house. Yeah. I didn't know like cabin was like vacationing. Or- no, he was a local. The medical examiner could also tell that they'd been shot at a 45-degree angle, suggesting that the shooter was above them, pointing down, and the women were not standing up. They were sitting down, kneeling, something like that. They were shot at extremely close range with gunpowder burns on parts of their bodies. The next day, Trooper Robert Alkir, and I'm not sure if I'm saying Alkir correctly, it's A-L-K-I-R-E, so I'm just going to go with Alkir. I like it. Yeah. He was with the West Virginia State Police and he headed over to the Rainbow Gathering since that flyer in the woman's hand made it seem like that's where they were heading. The Rainbow Gathering, which is short for Rainbow Family World Peace Gathering, was a roving outdoor summer festival that's held every year since 1972, continuing to this day. Mm-hmm. Though last year, due to COVID, they joined up online to quote, home from home.
1: Oh,
0: oh, I'd wear that t-shirt. I've kind of went too, actually, with like a lotus, because how much appropriation is that? All right. (sighs) The purpose, according to the Flyers advertising the event in 1979, was to spread the true truth that humanity is beautiful, that we can live and work together in cooperation and joy. The Rainbow Family was a very loose organization, meaning that it wasn't like super structured. They wanted to bring back the spirit of the 1960s hippie movement, and every summer they would just pick a remote area of public land and people would just show up, sometimes as many as 20,000 people. They never bothered with things like permits. They don't really respect rules or authority for its own sake, which sometimes could cause locals to react with hostility. The group does make an effort to behave respectfully and to leave the area better than they found it. But they often only give like a month's notice or less, leaving very little time for the nearby town to prepare to host tens of thousands of people. I'm having like very much like anxiety. I know this is not the same, but it's like – world. astro worlds I know. I thought of it too. I know. So. I'm like – I thought of it too. This is not Astroworld. <laughs> very I know, peaceful, but it's just like thinking – Hippie. <laughs> like – In 1980, the group wanted to have the gathering in the Monongahela National Forest, just outside Pocahontas County in West Virginia. The locals' reaction to the rainbow gathering ran from curiosity to just open hostility. They even filed an injunction to block the gathering, but it was thrown out. And this hostility to outsiders is not unusual for this part of the country. And really, to understand the difficulties of this case, You need to understand some facts about this part of the country, as well as just some cultural features of Appalachia. This is an incredibly condensed version of the history of Appalachia, which is really complex and complicated. So I'm just going to give you enough to get an idea. Are you ready for your history lesson? Yes, but I'm actually very intrigued by this because I feel like this is an area of the country I knew zero Mm -hmm. zilch about. Like I could not have placed it on a map. I feel like the only thing I knew about it was the stereotypes, you know, which is, like, not great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I did watch The the Wild Wonderful wonderful West Virginia. Virginia. It's the Boone (laughs) man. Okay, we won't. But I, I did get a kick out of that. Yeah. All right. So the state of West Virginia lies entirely inside of the Appalachian wilderness, and it's covered in vast amounts of natural resources. When it was first settled, it seemed like an infinite amount of resources. Like, this area should have been rich. But people who did not belong to the area came and just took nearly all of these resources without any concern for sustainability, just basically drained it dry and took off. And the area was not compensated at all for any of the resources that they took. And that led to the crushing poverty that still exists in Appalachia today. This resulted in a very us-versus-them mentality. Locals don't trust outsiders, including the U.S. government or any corporations. Probably why you couldn't find a decent bathroom. I was just about to say, they're not like, (laughs) yeah, they're not really trying to even like help you out on your travels through, you know? exactly. Today, Pocahontas County is made up of only 9,000 residents in an area about the size of Rhode Island which would be like nine square miles of land each if it were divided up equally among the residents, which is insane to me. (laughs) So much space. Nobody's there. It's filled by the Monongahela National Forest, which is a vast, dense, mountainous forest. The terrain is difficult to travel through with switchback roads that drop steeply into valleys and at times is completely impassable, especially for people not from the area. Even on paved roads, some vehicle types might struggle due to the topography, the weather, whether the road is well-maintained. And, and they're not, usually. <laughs> they're not, yeah. Know. And there are still struggles with the people of West Virginia. Access to health care, much less mental health care, is limited, and it may take them an hour or more to just to drive to the doctor. West Virginians, on average, make the second lowest annual income in the United States, but their insurance premiums under the Affordable Care Act are the eighth highest in the nation. Oh, my word. Yeah. Ties to the community and to family are also really important to consider because, like, everyone is someone's cousin or aunt or relative. And if they aren't related, they grew up going to the same school and living in the same community. Basically, it's the type of place where everyone knows everyone else and their mama. (laughs) Truly. And I didn't know, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I had to visit West Virginia University a few times, I learned that they offer in-state tuition to a lot of -of out-of-state schools to drive people to go there. So this idea of like even feeling some type of, like, I don't want to say nostalgia because a lot of people feel that when they go out of state, but like New Jersey residents get free tuition to west virginia or not free but in mm-hmm. don't have to pay out of state tuition and i think they do get a reduced rate and so there's do you just, know my, just a my lot of, step like, sister com- went to college in west virginia for a year on a basketball yeah, and scholarship and then they a lot of time leave and there's not this like tie to go back so i just feel like a lot of the feelings that you even have to like go back to your alma mater all that mm-hmm. like i it just almost doesn't even exist There, in a lot of ways, there's, I don't know, it's just an interesting place. I've had to spend some time there. It is a really interesting place. And that's an incredibly condensed backstory of Appalachia. The history is a lot more complicated and complex than that, but I would need an entire separate episode for that. So, the Rainbow Gathering decides that they're going to come to Pocahontas County for its festival in 1980. The locals filed an injunction to try and stop them, but that was thrown out. So between 2 and 6000 rainbows came and camped out in the Monongahela forest for the festival. Is that where the bumper sticker coexist came from? Is this the group that created that? I it feels doubt like it. it, but I have that painting on my mantle in the in my living room. <laughs> Did you know room. what I mean? Like that kind of uh-huh. feels like this whole vibe. Totally. Oh yeah, I'm sure they have a banner that says coexist now. <laughs> or not because they probably reject all of the religious idols. I don't know. Once at the site, a bluegrass band welcomed visitors and volunteers helped people move in an orderly fashion. Camps divided themselves up by categories like drug free, clothing on, clothing optional, organic food only. Okay, so like, why couldn't Firefest figure this out? You know, I mean, this feels. That's a really good point because Firefest was full of rich, entitled dipweeds, and this is full of hippies that don't mind sleeping outside. <laughs> they would have been like, where's my tent? You know? <laughs> where's my FEMA tent? Yeah, the camp itself was very clean. There were kitchen tents and rainbows cooked for other rainbows. Anyone could have food for free. All you had to do was ask and maybe help out with the cooking. Volunteers made sure the trash was taken out to the proper places. They also had dug ditches for compost and an open air trench for latrines. They offered workshops like yoga and grain and organic vegetable farming, Appalachian folk dancing. This kind of sounds like your jam. Yeah, except for the camping and the dirty. And the latrines, yeah. And the latrines, yeah. Mostly people just wanted to come and talk to others who held some of the same beliefs and ideas. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, though. There were some accounts of petty theft and of several rainbows going to the grocery store and washing their muddy hands in the vegetable crisper at the grocery (gasps) store. (laughs) Shut up. A small group of rainbows ran naked through a car wash in town to get clean, and locals started to just set up lawn chairs and watch people stream into the festival. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a bunch of people jumping in a pool after a paint year date, too, but. <laughs> well, that just sounds really fun, actually. I know. So that detective, Alkir, he heads out to the Rainbow Gathering with the pictures of the two dead women, showing them around to people and just hoping that somebody would recognize them and could identify them. But no one there seemed to know who they were. One of the Rainbow leaders took the photos and told Alkir that he would get them printed in the festival newsletter the next day. They even had a newsletter, Mogab. Oh, I love that. But we don't know that they made it there. Like, they could have been on their way. Right. It seems like they were on their way. So this is kind of just him following a clue, like, the only clue that he can. Maybe they were going to meet somebody there that would know who they were. So he was true to his word. The photos were published, but no one came forward during the festival. People wondered if the violence had been targeted at them because they were rainbow people or because the locals had been angry that they were having their festival there. But the festival ended as scheduled, and everyone dispersed, leaving behind very little damage to the land, no hospitalizations, and no arrests. It was just a very peaceful gathering. Yeah, that sounds a lot better than <laughs> when I reread that. I was like, yeah, not. It's not Astro World, or like your regular, regular run of the mill like festival. You well, know? yeah, I mean- you always have something. Um, the photos that. That were printed, they were the photos Mm -hmm. of the dead bodies? Yeah, that's all they had. Yeah. Oh. I think, like, their faces. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Kathy Santamero had been one of the attendees at the Rainbow Gathering. She'd traveled there from Long Island, and she's supposed to be meeting up with her sister Nancy, who'd been living in Arizona. They'd made plans to meet up with a group of their friends at the Rainbow Gathering, but Nancy never showed, (laughs) even after Kathy waited for her for several days. Kathy had seen the photos in the newsletter, but the quality had made it hard to tell, and she just didn't recognize either of the pictures as her sister. She figured Nancy had just found something better to do. Is it Nancy? Is it Nancy? Yes. (gasps) Kathy ended up heading back to Long Island without Nancy, but when she still hadn't heard from her sister after several days at home, she started to wonder more seriously if that picture had been Nancy. How do you not know? I just think it was like a grainy, Like probably black and white photo that was like bad to begin with, and then it was printed in a newsletter, and Mm -hmm. you're just not looking at a picture of a dead person and expecting to see your sister, you know? Yeah. So I think part of it is like, nah, that's not her, you know? Mm -hmm. But another friend who had attended told her that she also thought it might be Nancy, and now Kathy had to know, so she made the drive down to Charleston, not South Carolina, like I've been assuming this whole (laughs) time. Yes. And when she was taken to the body, she immediately recognized her sister. Oh. She was even wearing a bracelet that Kathy had made for her. Oh, no. Once Nancy had been identified, they were able to find the identity of the other woman because they'd been together and they knew who it was. It was Vicki Durian. So how did Nancy and Vicky wind up on that mountain that night? Here is what we know. Is this solved? Um... Okay. (laughs) No, maybe. Not unofficially. You did not understand the assignment. (laughs) Blame Sabrina, it's her fault. She's going to love that. (laughs) It was June 1980. Three women were hitchhiking together across the United States. There was 26-year-old Vicki Durian, 19-year-old Nancy Santomero, and 18-year-old Elizabeth Jondro. So it's Vicki, Nancy, and Elizabeth who went by Liz. They were three independent spirits who loved to travel and wanted a lifestyle of wandering and seeking out new experiences. And that's really what drew them together in the first place. They'd all met when they'd found themselves living in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, I was literally just there. Love that place. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. You just got back. Vicky had grown up on a farm in Iowa, but when she was in high school, she'd gotten pregnant and her family basically forced her to either get married or give the baby up for adoption. The book said that throughout the 60s and 70s, 80% of single white women who got pregnant gave their babies up for adoption. Oh my goodness. So it was just like an expectation. You'll just give it up for adoption. But she hated it. She said she cried for the baby every day and she went through a complete personality change. She cut her hair, she stopped wearing makeup, and she traded in her trendy clothes for flowing dresses and baggy pants, morphing into the hippie that she wanted to be. Hmm. Vicky stopped eating meat and she started lecturing her family on the effects of littering. Little by little, she grew apart from her family until she just decided to leave. She wanted to head west to California, and so she started hitchhiking. She stopped off in Tucson, Arizona, where she found work as a home health aide And she liked it because the hours were flexible and it was easy to leave the job for weeks at a time when she wanted to go on a trip. She lived in a group house with 10 other people and her dog, and she loved it. She met Liz Jondreau, who became one of her really good friends in Tucson. But after a while, Liz wanted an adventure outside of Tucson. And she decided to move to an outlaw commune in the Arizona desert with people hiding from the law. I know that's just kind of thrown out there. I don't know much more about that commune, but it's true. <laughs> okay. I'm like, how do they find each other? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm picturing the old, like, wanted posters in, like, old Western movies. <laughs> yes, same. That's actually exactly – I didn't realize it until just now, but I did have a picture in my head, and it's absolutely <laughs> Those, like, from the- that. Yes. After Liz left, Vicky met Nancy by chance outside of an organic food co-op in Tucson, Arizona, they were connecting over the fact that they were both Scorpios, and Vicky oh. liked Nancy so much that she invited her to move into this group home with her. Scorpio vibes, okay. Yeah, Sabrina's also a Scorpio. She oh, she put that in the notes. <laughs> she was sending them to me. In the summer of 1980, Liz called Vicky up from her outlaw commune and asked <laughs> if she wanted to travel with her for a few weeks to attend the Rainbow Gathering. Vicki told Liz she was down to go, but she wanted to bring Nancy too. She said that Nancy could use the experience. On their way to the gathering, the trio spent several days with Vicky's family at their farmhouse in Iowa. And from there, they planned to hitchhike to West Virginia together for the festival. At this time, hitchhiking was seen as an invitation to adventure, a cheaper way to travel and meet people that you might not otherwise meet, and sometimes a necessity since fewer people owned cars back then. So did they hitchhike from Tucson all the way to Iowa, mm-hmm. and then Iowa to West Virginia? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, wow. But Vicki's family did not understand their daughter's lifestyle. They wanted her to stay and settle down at home with them, but Vicky told them this would probably be her last big trip, and she'd have to think about coming home. Vicki's mother dropped them off at a nearby interstate ramp, crying as she said goodbye to them and drove off. <sighs> Could you imagine? Drop me off at this feeder room so I can like get in a car with some stranger. I know. But Vicky told her friends that that was unusual. Her mother had never cried when they'd said goodbye before. It was not a good omen and the girls would not make it to the festival. Oh my goodness. But it was three girls traveling together and only two were found. Mm hmm. Once police identified the bodies, they'd quickly discovered they're traveling with a third, but they didn't know much about her, only that her first name was Liz. They started searching for her body around where the others were found, while rumors about the murders spread through town. People started suspecting that the person responsible for the killings was local because of the location of the bodies. Not many people outside of Pocahontas County would have known how to get up there. But also, it was right near this, like, famous Civil War battle site. so like hmm. people i'm sure it was like a park you know so yeah they also like make a lot of assumptions and it's like oh it's gotta be someone local that like you know right i don't know yeah like, not exactly. necessarily right a week went by with no sign of liz when alkira got a call on his phone the voice on the other end said my name is elizabeth Jondro, and i'm alive Liz explained how she and Vicky had been friends and how Vicky had introduced her to Nancy and they'd all decided to go to the Rainbow Gathering together. She said they'd hitchhiked with lots of people. Most of them were good. Some were dangerous. But they'd oh. arrived in West Virginia early or before the festival was going to start. So the girls hitched to South Carolina. They stayed at the beach at on Sullivan's Island and then they headed <gasps> back towards well, the gathering. Place. Oh, really? hmm At a truck stop in Richmond, Virginia – Liz had a feeling that she should call home. She just got this kind of bad feeling. She called home and she learned that her father was getting remarried later that week in Vermont. So she decided that she needed to go home to Vermont to go to the wedding and that she was going to have to miss the festival. They just like didn't tell her that? Well, she'd been living in an outlaw commune. I'm oh, I'm yeah, guessing yeah. they probably to- didn't know how to get in touch. <laughs> So Liz hitched a ride north to go to Vermont, and Vicki and Nancy headed west, back to West Virginia. She said she didn't know what happened after that. Along the routes that Vicky and Nancy might have taken, tons of business owners had possible sightings of the girls. Alkira took as many statements as he could, but it was getting really difficult to determine which route the girls actually took. Police know they traveled down I-64, and they were pretty sure that the most likely exit they took was for Highway 219. The closest business to this exit was a general store, and a worker there gave a statement that between 5.30 and 6 on June 25th, the day of the murders, two women came in and bought something. One of the women had a green velvet change purse. The worker remembered them because she'd said that they'd come from Arizona, which stood out as unusual to the worker. They then got into a black Chevy Nova driven by a young man who had purchased $6 worth of gas. He was tall, thin, and blonde and, quote, not a hippie. (laughs) He did not have a mustache, glasses, or a beard, which I guess maybe those things are what make you a hippie. So he was clean shaven, I guess. All right, yeah. The car turned right on 219, presumably headed towards the Rainbow Gathering. Alkir's first step was to look for owners of black Chevy Novas and then those with a criminal history or with interactions with police. His initial list of suspects consisted of a flasher with a flimsy alibi, a man named Arnold Cutlip, who was one of two houses within earshot of where Nancy and Vicky died. The other house was owned by a deaf 80-year-old, so I think they were... Oh, you never can be too sure. <laughs> I'm not letting anyone out just yet. And a man named Palmer Adkinson, who was already being investigated separately for his possible involvement in a murder-for-hire plot. Okay, yeah, he's first on my list. <laughs> Alkir was also trying to look into possible motives. He figured it could be one of three things. One, sexually motivated, but they weren't sexually assaulted. Two, robbery, because the women had had backpacks and a tent that had not been found. Or three, someone just wanted to kill Rainbow family members. Yeah, but that feels random, too, and the whole festival is, like, up the road, you know? Right. Yeah. And like, they weren't even there. They just Yeah. And there was like no other incidents at the festival. You know, yeah. there was like no local showing up to disrupt or like anything like it just right. went off without a hitch. Except for elsewhere, these murders happened. It didn't take long for the girls lost backpacks and tents to turn up hunters found them in the woods about 60 miles west of where the bodies were found. None of their belongings were missing, which meant robbery was ruled out as a possible motive. And Alkir started to lean towards this theory that this had been done by someone who just hated the rainbow gathering. And he felt strongly that a local had committed the crime because of how remote the area was that the bodies were found in. Okay, but even if it was a local, they could now not be local. Like, you know? Right, yeah. For two years, law enforcement worked this case. But by 1982, it seemed to have gone cold. Then, in July 1982, almost exactly two years after the murders, one night around 9 p.m., Vicki Durian's family received a call. Vicky's father, Howard, answered the phone, and it was a man who said he was from Pocahontas, West Virginia, and that he was really sorry about Howard's daughter's death. Uh. He then suggested that Howard get the FBI involved because the people working the case weren't very bright. When Howard asked the man's name, he just said, I'm not the murderer, and hung up. (laughs) (laughs) Howard called Alkir immediately, and a tap was placed on the line in case the caller called back. He did. His name was Jacob Beard, and he'd grown up in Pocahontas County, and he was pretty well known by most of the residents in the area. He still had family land tying him to the area, and he'd received his fair share of drunken disorderly charges. People said that Jacob Beard was okay when he was sober, but when he was drunk, he was meaner than hell. I feel like that's most of West Virginia, though. Like, I feel like that's like, like most I, men. Like, yes. when they're okay when they're sober sometimes, but when you're drunk, you're just meaner than hell. Yeah, it's, <laughs> truly. People described him as having two different personalities. He also had a reputation of being a bit of a bully and of people around town being scared of him. Jacob said he'd been thinking about how this case just didn't make any sense and it bothered him and he finally decided to call Vicky's father. Ugh, I don't buy that. Like, who's just sitting – I mean, I know we sit around and do a whole podcast. <laughs> but you're going to look at her father's name and then call him to say you're sorry? No, it's weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a, coming from a place with a very us versus them mentality – I don't know. you think that they wouldn't be like reaching out to strangers in Iowa. I don't know. Yeah. He said once he made the call, he'd put it out of his mind. And when the police picked him up, he wasn't sure what they wanted with him. Oh, y- no. You know. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, you stir in the pot. He just forgot. He just forgot he called a murdered woman's father. He forgot yeah. he did that, Mogab. At first, he denied making the calls. Then he admitted that he had But he said he just felt so bad about those girls and their families. He said he didn't give his name because he didn't know anything and he didn't want it to seem like he did or get too involved. Jacob pointed out if he had wanted to hide things, he wouldn't have made the call from home, which he did. The police asked him if he could see how it looked pretty suspicious, and they asked him for his alibi. Jacob said he'd been at his job at Greenbrier Tractor Sales on the day of the murder until 1, when he left to make a house call to repair some machinery until about 5.15. Then he went to a school board meeting with his wife, Linda, around 7 or 7.30. Normally, he did not go to school board meetings, but that night there'd been a, a vote to close the school his daughters attended, meaning they'd have to travel pretty far to go to a larger school. And Jacob spoke against the plan at the meeting, but they still voted in favor of shutting down the school. Jacob left with his wife's cousin, the cousin's wife, and another friend. Uh, I'm sorry, do you expect me to keep all of this in my noggin? Do you not have- Sabrina made you a flowchart. Okay, well, (laughs) if you want me to pull that up, I will, but... What are you having trouble keeping in your head? Just, I mean, you're just rattling off people, like. No, just, he just left with a bunch of people. he There were people that could confirm that he was at this school board meeting. Okay. If they were important, I would have given them names. (laughs) Okay, but who was at the school board meeting? Like, the school board, and then his wife's cousin, the cousin's wife, and another friend. Yeah, with Jacob Beard. Okay. Alkir couldn't hold Jacob without something more concrete. Concrete? Yeah, no, <laughs> don't give me. Yes, ailments, uh, ailments, concrete? concrete. How about a Dalmatian? Is there a Dalmatian walking on I the concrete? I Dalmatian. I stand by Dalmatian. Oh, stop it. Dalmatian. Do you, your, your Dalmatian yeah, do you walk your Dalmatian on the concrete? Yes, you walk your Dalmatian on the concrete. Oh, good, but it's it's <sighs> not like concrete. Yes, it is. No, that's like the pavement. This is like concrete. Without something more concrete. No, it's. I feel like you pronounce them different ways. You don't pronounce No, you them do not. Ways. I think you do. <laughs> you do not. Alkir couldn't hold Jacob without something more concrete. Con- no, concre- don't concrete. act like you're re saying that because you're gutting that. You can't cut it. I'll just sit here and blast. (laughs) (laughs) Alkir couldn't hold Jacob without something (laughs) more concrete. So he released him and worked on confirming his alibi. Jacob was fully covered at the school meeting, after the school board meeting, but everything earlier could not be verified. Alkir also discovered that Jacob had lied to him. He left out the fact that he'd also left that meeting with his mistress, Patricia. And as we all know, if you lie about being a cheater, you're also very likely lying about murder. LOL. LOL. But I mean, a good rule of thumb is, you know, to don't do either. Yeah, don't do either. Uh, if you cheat, you're going to get arrested for murder eventually. Then they'll use it against you. So yeah, there's so your warning. You will get, what is it? You will get chlamydia and die. That's what you just stop that like. If you cheat, you will get chlamydia and Die. <laughs> die. <laughs> Mean girls, ugh. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's pros ecom slash creepers for your free consultation, and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas, pros.com slash creepers. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Creepers. So Detective Alkira kept close tabs on Jacob, interviewing him several more times in January and February of 1983, and Alkira started to have doubts that he'd committed the murders, but he still thought he knew more than he was saying. They started applying more pressure to him, asking him if there was anything he'd forgotten to tell them about the Rainbow murders. They were so sure he knew something. They even offered him immunity in exchange for his testimony, so long as he was only an accessory before or after the fact, not if it turned out that he had been the shooter. So, Jacob said he had seen something that night near where the murders took place. He saw several cars parked by the entrance to Droop Mountain. And he recognized the cars of several people he knew. But Jacob said he would just told them that because he felt like he had to tell them something because of this immunity agreement. He knew the cars didn't actually have anything to do with the Rainbow Murders. And he said he hadn't really understood what he'd need immunity for. And he'd only signed the agreement because his lawyer had told him to. He thought he'd just be able to go home if he signed it. <laughs> You're never going home if you sign it. You're never going home. Not, but not. Detective Alkir had set his sights on him. Jacob felt like Alkir hounded him all summer and that he was being treated unfairly. Alkir called him in again, and Jacob had every intention of telling him to leave him alone and that he was done talking to the police. But instead, for whatever reason, he told Alkier an incredibly bizarre story. Oh. He said that in September of 1980, three months after the Rainbow murders, Another Rainbow family member had been killed. Why they were there three months later, don't know. He said that Palmer Atkinson and Arnold Cutlip, two of the others on the suspect list, that they'd killed a woman, brought her to Jacob's farm, and then ran her through a corn chipper on his property to dispose of her. Arnold Cutlip was arrested for this and held for two months while investigators completely disassembled Jacob's corn chipper and they found no evidence that anything human had ever gone through oh. the corn chipper. And it was determined that Jacob had just made up the story and they released Arnold. But why? Palmer Atkinson, the other guy, he was already in jail for something else. So he stayed in. But Jacob didn't stop there with the stories. So a few years later, in 1983, a local named Lee Morrison went to the sheriff and told him that he and this other guy, Gerald Brown, had picked up the women when they were hitchhiking and that he'd seen Gerald kill both of the women and that Lee had helped him move the bodies. I'm well, gonna look at my chart. Yeah, so they arrested Gerald and charged him with the murders, only for it to come out at the preliminary hearing that Lee had made the entire story up because he said Jacob had threatened his family, if he didn't what? say that. And then the case went cold again. Between 1985 and 1991, police kind of gave up investigating Jacob Beard. They still remembered that weird call to the Durian family and the bizarre corn chipper story. But Jacob had moved to Florida in the intervening years, and the police moved on from him too. Until Jacob came back to West Virginia in 1991. Why? Yeah, should have stayed away, dude. Several other witnesses came forward to say that they'd heard Jacob talking about the murders. Others said they saw his car near the entrance to the park that night, and a man named Winters Walton, a.k.a. Pee-wee. Oh, Pee-wee? Pee-wee Winters? Pee-wee Walton. Winters is his first name. Oh, Winters Walton. (laughs) Oh, that's – yeah, I'd go by Pee-wee too. (laughs) He came forward to say that he might have been present when the murders occurred and after several interviews with police, admitted that he had been with a man named Lewis and that they'd seen Jacob Beard shoot Nancy and Vicky. And when police talked to Lewis, he confirmed what Winters Pee Wee Walton had said. What, he just admitted it? He admitted that he'd also been there and seen Jacob Beard shoot them. Yeah. On April 16th, 1992, First degree murder charges were brought against Jacob Beard and like six other men that all seemed to be involved that had all been uncovered during interviews. I cut out like a lot of stuff about them because at the end it kind of doesn't really matter and it was just a lot. I didn't want to like bury you with names. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. But some of those six men were Winters Walton aka Wee. Who said that he'd actually been physically threatened by police like he said one officer put his foot on the back of his neck. And that's why he'd said it had been Jacob. He recanted his identification of Jacob five separate times to his lawyer. And Lewis said he received similar treatment from police. So it wasn't just police going, Hey, Lewis, were you there when this happened? And he's like, Oh, yeah, I was. I did see that. I did see that happen. Um, Yeah. No, it was more like, I'm going to put my foot on the back of your neck until you remember what you saw and tell me it was Jacob. Yeah, that's never working well, I feel like. Well, yeah. I mean, you're not going to get good information when you do that. You're going to get stories. Yeah. When Lewis and Winters started recanting their statements, this case just started falling apart, and they ended up having to drop charges on everyone. The county prosecutor, Walt (laughs) Weaford. Excuse me, who? Walt (laughs) Weaford. He was getting desperate, and he went to Detective Alkyr and said that they should put Lewis and Winters under hypnosis. And then whatever they said under hypnosis would be the true account of what happened. Get out of here, Weaford. I'm not even kidding. Surprisingly, Lewis and Winters both agreed to it, and supposedly under hypnosis, they both said they saw Jacob shoot Nancy and Vicky. So Weeford used this to recharge Jacob Beard and all the other people he'd initially suspected, except he gave Winters and Lewis immunity in exchange for their testimony. Oh. The trial was moved. It was going to be in Lewisburg, about 80 miles away from Pocahontas County, because everyone in the county had pretty much made up their minds about who did it, and getting a fair trial was going to be impossible. Everyone was sequestered to the only motel in Lewisburg, including the victim's <laughs> families, the defense attorneys, and even Jacob Beard himself. Oh, no. Awkward. Yeah, like, I'm just trying to get these corn chips from the vending machine, and you, like, <laughs> run into, like... Listen, you don't want the corn chips out of that vending machine, I'm sure of it. <laughs> the trial lasted twelve days, which is literally amazing, considering there had they had no physical evidence, no fingerprints, no murder weapon. DNA wasn't really used much at the time, because this is the eighties. No, there's no cell phone tower records they're going through. Right, no cell phone tower records. You're right. no nope. All it's they had, search engine history. No, all they had were two coerced statements from two men. Who said they saw the murders after an officer put a shoe on their neck? That how does that last 12, 12. days? I don't yeah, know. What are we doing? What are we talking about? What are we doing? There's a lot of recesses going on, a lot of <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of sidebars, a lot of approach the bench, a lot of that. <laughs> there was no clear motive. So the prosecution went with possibly sexually motivated, but again, there was no evidence that they were sexually assaulted. Or just plain old misogyny, you know, which I guess you could claim at for every single murder of a woman. Right by a man. The defense was there to poke all the right holes in the prosecution's case. They pointed out how Winters Walton had somehow forgotten for 13 years that he'd witnessed a double murder. They showed how once Jacob made those weird calls to the Durians, police hadn't really looked into anyone else. At trial, the medical examiner widened his window for time of death, Originally, he said that they had been killed around 7 p.m., which meant that it would have been hard for Jacob to have done it because of his alibi at the school board meeting that night. But at trial, he said the murders could have happened as early as 2 p.m. That's a big gap. That's, yeah, that's like five extra hours that you're suddenly If those women were murdered at 2, no way at whatever time were they found by Tim that their bodies were still warm. Well, I actually looked into how long, because I looked into that, because I'm like, that can't be true, because yeah, there would have been rigor mortis, but it's actually yeah. like 12 hours. Really? According to my one second Google search of how long does it take for a body to, for rigor mortis 40% to 40% accurate, everybody. Yeah. So I gave it a Goog, but I just looked at the headline okay. I didn't even click on the article. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But it we'll said like 12 hours. Look, this is how I do uh, research, okay? Probably Somehow longer if they lay. Get the information, move on. If they lay on the concrete. <laughs> the concrete, yeah. It's a bit shorter because the concrete can <laughs> yeah, get the sun, yes. There was such little evidence that a little over halfway through the trial, the defense actually motioned to dismiss the charges. And this, like, never works. There's usually some, like, I'm putting in a motion to dismiss the charges because of XYZ. And they're like, sit down. But in this case, they did dismiss one of the charges, which was abduction with an intent to defile. Ew. which sounds so gross because no one could place Jacob or anyone else accused of this actually speaking to Vicki or Nancy. So it's like they couldn't actually prove that they had abducted them with intent to defile because they never even talked to them before. Sure. But then two state police who had helped with the interviews, they testified that not only did they think that Walton and Lewis were not being truthful, They said that they thought they were just telling investigators what they wanted to hear. This is state police testifying to this at trial. Right. But they also said who they thought had actually committed the murders. Oh. They thought it was an inmate named Joseph Paul Franklin, who is currently in prison in Illinois. More on that later. Yeah. More on that now. More on that in one, two, three paragraphs. (laughs) Jacob testified in his own defense. He denied killing Vicki and Nancy, but his testimony didn't really move the needle either way. On the day the trial ended, the prosecutor continued in the same vein, encouraging them to find Jacob guilty because the other theories of the crime just weren't even worth considering. The defense reiterated the police and prosecutorial persecution of Jacob and all the others accused of this, and they appealed to the West Virginia sense of mistrust in the law and the system. To ask them to prevent a grave injustice from being committed against this man who the prosecution had not proved beyond a shadow of a doubt was responsible for the crime. Which I gotta say, I totally agree with that. Like, whether or not Jacob has has committed this murder, they have not proved it. But that's not the way things work around here. That's <laughs> not how they work in Mogab land. That's right. With Mogab Justice. <laughs> And that's why Adnan's still in prison. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that does burn me up. It's going to burn you up even harder later. Okay, the jury deliberated for three hours and they found Jacob Beard guilty of the first degree murders of Vicky Durian and Nancy Santomero. And he was given two. Yeah. Because that's just the way it is around here. That's why. That's just the way it is around here. That's probably why. How? I don't know. I guess the phone calls are weird. The corn chipper story is weird. And then you got two guys saying that they saw him do it under hypnosis. So that, you know. And he was given two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Dang. So you'd think that'd be the end of things. But you'd be wrong. Enter Joseph Paul Franklin. This is the inmate those two officers brought up at Jacob's trial. The one they thought had actually committed the Rainbow Murders. But why did they think that? We don't know yet. I will tell you. Oh. Franklin had actually changed his name from James Vaughn after he read Mein Kampf and realized how much he related to the Hitler Youth. So, uh, Joseph Paul Franklin – like, Joseph was the name of, like, Hitler's somebody, and he named himself after all these people. Okay. He grew up in Mobile, Alabama, in a very poor neighborhood with a mother who beat him, starved him, and forced him to sleep outside. As a teen, he was already blind in the right eye and had multiple instances of brain damage from the severity of her abuse. And after reading Mein Kampf, Franklin went all in on the white supremacist propaganda, and he stopped associating with all black people, including those that had been his friends and had regularly given him food when he was hungry. He joined the American Nazi Party and the KKK and was really interested in Charles Manson's theory of helter-skelter, which is basically like an apocalyptic race war brought on by the tensions between white and black people. Franklin wanted to help bring helter-skelter on, and he decided to do that by regularly insulting interracial couples he saw on the street, which then escalated to spraying mace in their faces He became so aggressive and upset when he learned that his sister had a black housekeeper that she came close to calling the police to get him to leave. But don't worry, he got all the help that he needed to deal with the trauma from his childhood, and he really turned himself around before it got too bad. Oh, I mean, listen, I will serve up the blame buffet because I don't give a shit about whatever he's feeling. (laughs) Also, I'm just kidding. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he started making bombs, and he targeted a synagogue and a pro-Israel politician – And then he got in an argument with a black man and a white woman driving in a car together, and then he shot and killed them both. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's real bad. And I've never heard of this guy before in my life. After this, throughout 1997 to 1980, Franklin roamed the U.S. killing black men, people who even just appeared to be in interracial relationships, and Jewish people. To fund the murders, he robbed banks. I mean, he even tried to murder Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, because he put interracial couples in the magazine. Larry Flint was partially paralyzed from this attack, like for the rest of his life. Yeah. How do we not know this person? I know. His victims increased to at least 20, possibly more, until he was finally captured in Florida in 1980 when he went to donate blood and one of the workers recognized his tattoo i'm sorry what makes you think we want your blood Uh, he's just like not your blood blood. so maybe he this was in 1980 so maybe he was selling it i think they were still i think you could still sell your blood in the 80s because it was like before hiv he was tried and received two life sentences and he was later tried for other murders and received the death penalty Every detective with unsolved cases that were possibly racially motivated came to interview Franklin in the hopes that he would confess to their murder that they were working on. And during one of these interviews, he made an offhand comment about picking up two female hitchhikers in West Virginia and killing them. The, so the details that he gave more or less match the murders of Vicky and Nancy. He said he killed them because they seemed like communists. And they probably (laughs) had had sex with a black man before, so deserved it, obviously. He described how he shot them, and it fit with them being seated, which is what the autopsies had indicated. The agent interviewing him had him draw a map of where he picked up the women and where he left their bodies. This map included a hand-drawn picture of the bullets he used to kill them. As well as a note about a rainbow meeting, like it just <gasps> on this map, it said rainbow meeting that Franklin said the girls told him they were going to or had just come from. He couldn't remember. The agent got in contact with Detective Alkir and he and the prosecutor Weford looked at the map that had been drawn and they felt that it was just inaccurate because it didn't Whoa. match the topography of the area. This is blowing my mind. Like, I am the most like tried and true Texan. If you asked me to draw the outline of the state right now, it would probably look like a ravioli. Okay, <laughs> like, yeah, I and cannot- if you ask me to draw you a map from like your aunt's house to my house, I'm sure that the road, like, it's not going to be to scale. You know? Yeah. Also, no. he had put the gas station on the wrong side of the road, so it's obviously that he just made it up. Okay. Well, this is how many years later? Also, yeah. And yeah, like I like I said, his map wasn't to scale like they expected. The X's. Now how much he drew, paper did they give him? He had one. One sheet, sheet of paper. one eight yeah. and a half by eleven? Yeah, one sheet of paper. Plenty. Okay. Apparently. Then. The X's he drew to indicate where Vicky and Nancy's body were were way too close to where two nineteen was on the map when really it was like a fifteen minute drive away. That's cause you gave him one sheet of paper. Yeah. And because of all these glaring inconsistencies, Alkir and Weford assumed Franklin had just read about the case and made up the details Ugh. and then just went back to focusing on Jacob Beard and their group of preferred suspects. Come on, um, So this is all happening before the trials. Like, this is in 1980. Like. I mean, it's not like it's trending on Twitter. It's not like it's going viral. It's not like it's in all these. Right. And I mean it's possible that he read about the murders and like knew that they were going to the Rainbow Festival. I don't know. In Illinois? Are people in West Virginia like are murders happening in West Virginia making it in the Illinois, like I mean, they got a lot going on in Chicago. You think they're printing stuff about two girls in West Virginia? I don't know. Well, I think he had been like kind of all over. Like he was arrested in Florida. Well, they definitely got their own stuff going on there too. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. They never proved that he had read a newspaper where he could have seen this information. It really just seems like they kind of looked at it. It wasn't good enough. And they kind of dismissed it and just went about their their days. But to me, these murders were so random. There was obviously no motive. Nothing was stolen from them. They weren't sexually assaulted. It doesn't make sense that it was somebody that just hated the Rainbow family, because why would they go to them and not go to like the festival? It's just hard. Like Beard didn't do himself any favors. Like that is weird behavior. And I know that that's like. Yeah, it's weird. And I'm not saying he didn't do it. I don't know if he did it. But to me, it makes a lot more sense that some guy that was on a serial killing spree and was passing through town would have been more likely to kill them and then he admitted that he killed them you know he took credit for it but we also know that false confessions happen all the time and i just feel people take credit for murders they didn't do all the time so but i feel like even if he would have read about it how much detail was in whatever he read because it's like he knew they were sitting down i just yeah I, i think sometimes we obviously not we but you know we print too much information and then we're shocked when we get these false confessions, all these details. And it's like, if the details like they were sitting down or they were going to this rainbow thing, like weren't printed, then I think that leads mm-hmm. me to believe that he did it. But if all that information is out there, then yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And the the map is in the book. Like I I, I looked at the map. Right. And I don't know that area at all like at all and i'm kind of confused about what the crime scene area like was and looked like because sometimes it was referred to as droop mountain sometimes it was briary knob is briary knob a i mean you were in mountain? south carolina for half the story girls so. <laughs> i really was there was this uh civil war battle that was fought there i mean it was like the location is confusing to me but the map for somebody writing it like drawing it a few years later and it wasn't that long later because this wasn't happening after the trial all of these interviews are happening before the hypnosis stuff and before like all of that like they had this information when they were going after lee morrison and gerald brown when they were arresting them for the murder and then having to drop the charges later but i think like the gas station on the wrong side of the road like that doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, at I all. feel like in a couple days, I'd forget Which that. Side. And like, was yeah. there proof that he stopped at the gas station? No. So, like, why right. would he remember what side the gas station was on? He just remembered he passed a gas station. Right. My God. I sometimes can't remember what side of the road the one down the street is on. I'm like, am I going to pass it this way or that way? Yeah. <laughs> what lane do I need to be in? Okay. So, Franklin said that no one from Pocahontas County, Alkira, Weaver, no one had ever come to talk to him about the confession that he gave after that after that after he's saying like i did this and here are the details and here's my hand-drawn map nobody even came to talk to him about it they just assumed that i don't understand he was making it up and didn't even go and talk to him yeah and that wasn't the only interview that Franklin confessed to the Rainbow Murders in. Other agents came from Tennessee to talk to him about a separate crime, and he again brought up the hitchhikers from West Virginia. So the West Virginian state police sent out another agent, Deborah DeFalco, to go interview Franklin. I'll be Franklin. my peep of the week, Deb. Well, <laughs> you know she's a woman, so she's walking and doing the, doing the <laughs> job. It's slim picking so far in this one. Yeah, she didn't expect anything to come out of going to talk to him because he'd just kind of been on a confessing spree. But Agent DeFalto talked to the first officer who had gotten that map drawing. And he thought the map worked, depending on how you interpreted it. And if you remembered that Franklin was not a professional cartographer, I think it's important yeah. to note here. Or like doodler, even. <laughs> right. But when DeFalco went to talk to Franklin, he told her he'd never killed anyone in his life. And he was being held prisoner for his political beliefs. Oh. He denied ever robbing a bank (laughs) while they showed him pictures of him in a disguise robbing a bank. (laughs) He refused to look at pictures of Vicky and Nancy's body. So DeFalco got up to leave. And then he just leaned in and whispered in her ear as she got up that he'd done it. Ugh. He's my game. So it's like, is he just playing games here? But she said that wasn't enough. So he told her where he would left Vicky and Nancy's belongings and detailed what the girls had had with them on like on their person. He said he didn't want anyone else going down for the crime. Oh, how noble of you. What a humanitarian. I mean, remember when we were if we was some episode where you were like, this is the least you could do is to not let somebody else go to prison for something. you Yeah, I mean, you're already sitting there. Yeah. And I I gotta say, I'm not a hundred percent sure if where he said he left Vicky and Nancy's belongings, if that matched up to where they were found. I don't know if it was or not. I didn't read that in the book anywhere. And I was reading it very carefully, I will tell you. I wasn't uh, just okay. I pretty tell. much looking so at the notes. That Sabrina. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Sabrina, hey, Sabrina, did they ever say <laughs> If that was the same spot, now we're just I'm not outsourcing sure. everything. <laughs> Defalco continued investigating, and in the end, concluded that Franklin had the means, the opportunity, and the motive to kill Vicky and Nancy. And his motive makes a lot more sense than this Rainbow Family motive. Like we already know, he's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's nothing like racial issue that he had here, but. Right, they were white women, but they probably had sex with a black man. Mugab, oh, you're forgetting that. Or just even like this, like whole hippie idea, and he's like trying yes. to, you know, the con- they were communists, yeah, and they, yes, it's a lot more, yeah. I don't know. It just seems to make sense- more sense that he did it than Jacob, but I don't know. Then, then we got Corn Chipper over here, and I'm like, yeah, that's weird, <sighs> so weird, but. Also, he was under a lot of pressure from the police, so I don't know. Would you just, like, make up random stories to try to help yourself? I don't know. And is uh, that yeah. really helping? <laughs> By trying I mean, to yeah, I don't know that people? those are the like, stories I would have made up. Yeah. The circumstantial evidence seemed to line up, and with the confession, it worked a lot better than Jacob Beard or Gerald Brown— even though there was nothing that could definitively say Franklin was definitely the guy. I mean, you could say the same thing for Jacob Beard and Gerald Brown. But Alkir and Weeford disagreed. They felt that he'd heard the details secondhand, and Alkir was certain the killer was a local. And I think that's that, really what- That is driving me nuts. Mm, I think that's really what made him dismiss it was, no, it's it is a local because no one else could find this spot. But I'm like, there's a national park right next to it. that was a site of a famous Civil War battle. Also, on Drew like, Mountain. you don't know who killed these people, so you don't know what they, they could. Maybe they're not locals, but they could be like expert, like hikers and campers, or you know, outdoorsmen or whatever. Or maybe they're not locals, but maybe they've been here for two weeks. I mean, I just think that's right. so weird. You're just like making an assumption. And don't know. based just on the location of the bodies, that no one but a local would ever go there. When you've got a festival with people camping out in the woods, like – I mean, you could say that about every hidden body. Like, they're hidden or they're in a remote location. Like, you're right. not putting it at the main intersection in town, you know? <laughs> know? Yeah, maybe you purposefully looked for a spot that was remote that, to shoot. Yeah, that no one would find. So it ended up being decided that both Alkir and DeFalco would stay on the case. So while Alkir is continuing to investigate Jacob Beard, DeFalco is investigating Franklin. Well, we know what team I'm on. Yeah. And again, this all happened like eight years before Jacob Beard was tried, convicted, and given two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Those started, his two life sentences started in 1993 at the West Virginia State Penitentiary. Jacob's health started deteriorating inside because of the poor conditions and the dangerous inmates. He started having anxiety attacks and was put on antidepressants. Sounds like Azkaban, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah, it does. In 95, Jacob was transferred to another prison, the Mount Olive Correctional Complex, that was brand new, and it was much cleaner and more modern. He got a good cell assignment, and there was less chaos. And Jacob could now focus on his appeal. Unfortunately, Franklin had once again gone back on his confession about the Rainbow murders, and he would not testify in the appeal that he had done it. And the judge wouldn't even let the officers testify about what Franklin had said other than just saying that he'd confessed and then taken it back. That's all they could say. So his appeals went nowhere. So his lawyer, Stephen Farmer, who was still working with him long after Jacob's money had run out because he really thought he didn't do it. That's He nice. decided instead of appealing, they were going to file for a new trial on the basis of Franklin's confession. The judge decided that the only way to meet the conditions required for a new trial would be if Franklin was deposed. So Farmer traveled to Missouri, along with Charlie Rose from 60 Minutes. Oh, yeah, I guess 60 Minutes was doing a big special on this, so they went out there and talked to Franklin, and he wasted no time, once again, taking credit for the murders. On 60 Minutes? <laughs> yeah, I think on 60 Minutes. They also talked to Lewis and Winters, the two who had claimed to see Jacob shoot Vicky and Nancy after they'd gone under hypnosis and recovered the memory of the shooting. And they told the same story that they had been telling pretty much since, that they'd been working all that day. They never saw Jacob that day or Vicki and Nancy. So Farmer took their statements and filed them along with the motion for a new trial. On January 22nd, 1999, Jacob was granted a new trial. The county decided that they would retry him at the cost of like $100,000. They're going to retry Jacob Beard. Like, let it go at this point. Yeah, so the trial started in May 2000. And it took two weeks. Again, I don't understand what they have to say. Yeah, what are we talking about? Yeah, they recalled everyone that had testified originally that was still alive. But this time, the defense put a psychological expert on the stand to talk about how that recovered memory from Walton and Lewis, how it had been invalidated by so many studies in the 80s and 90s, like since that trial. She testified that at best, the memories were suspect, and at worst, they were false memories created by the hypnosis sessions, and they'd never even existed in the first place. A man named Bill McCoy had also testified at the original trial about seeing Jacob commit the murders. And at this trial, he said that he had testified to that because he'd gotten addicted to heroin in prison. And Detective Alkir had offered to get him into a methadone program if he testified that he'd seen Jacob do it. Wait. (laughs) Like, this guy really wants to get Jacob Beard in prison at any means necessary. But also, did you say he got addicted to heroin in prison? Yes. What? That's terrible. I I know. So Bill McCoy comes to this trial and he said he'd never seen Jacob shoot or kill anybody. And on May 31st, 2000, the jury found Jacob Beard not guilty. Oh, my gosh. 20 years later? 20 years after the murders. I don't think he went to trial in, yeah, uh, 1993. So it was like he spent like seven years in prison, six or seven years. The prosecutor Weeford remains convinced of Jacob's guilt because he made that phone call to the durians, which I agree is weird, but I do not agree that it means it definitely did it. Yeah. He doesn't believe Franklin's confession and he noted that Franklin loved attention, which of course he did. Why else would he be confessing to this over and over and over again, whether yeah. he did it or not. That his story didn't line up with the with the things that they knew to be the facts of the case. No, Weeford, that's just what you think. <laughs> And he said his story changed as he got more details from police, which does look a little suspect and maybe like a false confession, I think. But how do you know that? Because you never even went and talked to the guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He thinks Jacob only got the new trial because of the media attention Charlie Rose brought with his 60-minute special on the case. And I'm like, no, he got a new trial. Well, that might have been part of it. But also he got a new trial because – it wasn't a good investigation. It wasn't a good evidence against him. Like, Well, that's why he should have gotten a new trial. I don't know that that's yeah. why, though. I think he. That's but, true. It probably is the media, but it should yeah. have been because, yeah. Well, if that was the case, where's Adnan's new trial? <laughs> <laughs> we will go. Yeah, that is uh-huh. not what I care. I was always, yeah. always going to bring that up. And Richard Glossop's still on death row. So, Still. I really thought there was going to be some movement after. Yeah, and I I don't think I put this in there, but Jacob ended up like suing and got like $1.3 million for the six years that he spent in prison, which is wild to me because like, I don't know, like, because Adnan's still in jail. (laughs) (laughs) It's not funny, but it's. Uh, mm. i mean you just have to laugh at the ridiculousness of this whole system add on, like, are you listening Adon. <laughs> he's not listening we can send him a transcript yeah anyways alkir said that he was open to the idea that franklin committed the crime but franklin had refused to talk to him so he couldn't prove or disprove his statements so some people are when saying did you that, try and talk to him yeah i don't know i don't know Maybe he did try to go and talk to him, and and Franklin just lied. I mean, he's not a great guy, so I don't think he's above lying. Here's my question. Like, if I was a detective, I'm sure my days would be very busy, no doubt. But if I got a phone call that someone said they did this, I don't know. I'm, like, canceling my trip to Subway for lunch. Like, I'm going to go, like, ask some questions if this is my – it's how I felt, like, in Scott Peterson. And they're like, oh, no, no one came in – And talk to the neighbors that saw Lacey out walking her dog. Like, I'm clearing my Monday morning and that is who I'm going to talk to. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, skip lunch. One lunch hour, you know. Set up a Zoom call. I just don't understand. Okay. So it seems like Alkira thinks that Jacob was the one responsible he told a story about Jacob calling him one night around two in the morning to say that he had information about what happened to the third girl. And al told him that there is no third girl, like the third girl was found. And I wish I knew the timeline of that. Like, did he say that around the time he was telling them that story about the corn chipper? Because he also said it was a third girl with the corn chipper. And like, does he think that Liz Jandro was murdered and nobody had found her body and he never heard that she was actually alive? Like, that was really weird. I do not care, care. <laughs> yeah, Debbie DeFalco still thinks that Franklin was the one responsible because there was no other evidence that pointed to Jacob Beard. She said it was a mistake for him to call the Durians, but she thinks that that's all it was. Yeah, it was weird. Franklin was tried for several unrelated murders in 1994. He represented himself, which I'm sure was a complete circus, and I <laughs> would like to know more about that. Uh, He lost, and during sentencing, he demanded the judge give him the death penalty, or he was going to kill again in prison. On November 20th, 2013, which was weird because I was writing this on November 20th, 2021. Anyways, on November 20th, 2013, Franklin was executed by lethal injection in the state of Missouri. The author of the book, Emma Copley Eisenberg, she felt that Jacob was more than likely not guilty, though she said he was a misogynist and kind of a jerk. Wait, wait, who was who was killed? Franklin Missouri was executed by lethal injection. Yeah, okay, that's okay. No, Jacob's out with his like one point three million dollars or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Which I can't imagine the families of those women that like if they really think Jacob did it. And, like, now he just has, like, he's a millionaire now because of it. Like, so he killed them and then actually, like, got rich. <laughs> hmm Yeah, I just don't think he did.
1: But, yeah,
0: I don't think well, he I did think- either. And I, I'm all for compensating people when they spend time wrongfully convicted. But, like, most of the time, it's, like, $60,000 a yeah. year. Like, each state varies. And I don't know what West Virginia's is. I can't imagine theirs is that much, though. Well, like, no, but at like most, he dollars. should have made 360 Like, he made a million dollars more than what he would have made in, like, most other states that have pretty decent compensation. But he spent seven, seven years, right? Like, six years, I think. Yeah, maybe seven. Well, a million dollars is going to go a long way in the world of the wild and beautiful, I think, of their state. Yeah, yeah who who but they're wild and beautiful is their uh, motto i think oh really is that why it's called the wild and wonderful whites of west virginia i mean it's mm-hmm. excellent alliteration yeah i know so the author feels like jacob is a jerk but not guilty and that franklin's the most likely perpetrator and i'm leaning more towards franklin but i'm not convinced i about any of it it's all this could be my genie wish maybe this is your genie wish case i don't know killed vicky and nancy i know it's awful i mean it's just so random and we'll probably never ever know who actually did it save for a genie wish and that's the story of the rainbow murders that makes me sad i know they were just like peace loving like want to travel wanderlust like people and (sighs) young you know nancy was only 19 vicky was 26 yeah just out there with their flower crowns and like right you wanted know. to go do a maypole or whatever the hell they were doing out there in the middle of the forest doing like, it for the gram i don't you know i don't think i have a peep of the week this episode it's pretty sad yeah um, I don't obviously think it's whoever there's... made our shout out theme song but oh yeah okay that yes at berlina star is <gasps> the peep our pe- of the week <laughs> you're in good company oh it sure it's made my week <laughs> more sure than any of the me. people in this story did yeah i don't like any of these people Weefer. yeah yeah there's really not and i think that's what that's why it's unsolved because you don't yeah. you don't have that person that just proved it all right are you ready for show I am. time <laughs> i want answers i know I Want answers all right, here's our killer, killer new shout out song. Shout out time! Shout out time! Shout out time! Shout, time, out, time, out, time, time. Time, shout out time! It's time for shout outs to get together. All right, it's time, man. What a what a bop that song is! What what a bop! It's so great. Thank you yeah. for Averina Star. Those are so mm. fun. She's our first shout out this week. She's our what? She's our first shout out. We just shouted her out yeah. with our shout out song. But she, we shouted her out with our shout out song <laughs> that she made us. Yeah. That she made us. All right. Are you kicking it off? No, you. Oh, okay. Thank you to our first shout out. Thank you so much, Bama Jess, for your. Bama support. Jess. Love Roll you. Tad. Another big major shouts to Jessica McCalick. Huge shouts to Caitlin Williams, which is very Any close relation? to my name. No, but I'm Kristen yeah. Williams. Kristen with a K, Caitlin with a K. I know. We are, our, are you my long lost sibling? I need one right now. <laughs> Careful what you wish for, Caitlin. Okay. Just kidding. And Haley Frederick. Oh, Dolphinetta or Porpina. Oh, love you, girl. Do you, do you know about that? <laughs> yes. Okay, tell me tell me more about that later. She just loves dolphins. Oh, it's a girl that loves oh, that's dolphins. Fun. She goes by Dolphinetta or Porpina. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay. And last but not least, Destiny. It Destiny. is pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I could have really used a uh, Phonetics on the Porpina there, yeah. She she left you out and nothing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Destiny, so much. There's your shout out. Shout out time. If you would, I'm like still your- probably gonna just free. You know, just kind of like shout freestyle time. If you would like a shout out on the podcast, you can get one if you join our Patreon at any level: five dollars, seven dollars, ten dollars. You get a shout out. But you got to sign up on the form. There's a form. You have to. You got to follow the natural order of things around here. (laughs) MoGab has posted the form on the Patreon. So if you go to the posts on the Patreon, you can find it there. And also, if you have any questions about Patreon, like how to listen to it, because I have heard from people that I know that don't know how to listen to the episodes. They haven't figured out Patreon yet. If you have any questions about any of that, please send us an email. I can walk you through it. I can tell you exactly how to get the episodes into your favorite listening app. Now, people are just going to message you to have you give them one-on-one tutorials. (laughs) I'll give you a one-on-one tutorial if you sign up for our Patreon, okay? (laughs) And apart from that... Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hope you liked it. If you did, please consider going on and giving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. They really help us so much if you go and review us. So that would be amazing. And you can find us on all the social medias at Creepers Pod. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Soon to be the Ticket Talks. Oh my god, you guys. We're getting on TikTok. No, we're getting on TikTok. Get carried away. Look, I'm pretty excited about it. So, <laughs> look for us soon. We'll be at Cooper's Pot on there, and join our Facebook discussion group. It's so much fun. People are posting just cool stuff, yeah. like memes about the Commonwealth. And <laughs> <laughs> I can't see what content gets stirred up with my mom being here. So like <laughs> oh be yes. Something. Oh, absolutely. Bye peeps and creeps.